So um, one of the things, with spring semester, uh, come spring semester projects. Right, so like all the engineers, you're like, oh, so senior design, that's like the thing that dominates your life if you didn't know that already. Um, it's like it, everything is all about senior design if you're an engineer right now, right? It's, or if you are a graphic designer, it's all about getting your portfolio together because it's all about get this project. All these spring projects, um, even if you're a fine arts person, like you're getting everything ready for the recital. And maybe that's none of your majors. It's just like it's the whatever senior thesis. This is the project. This is the thing that needs to get done. It's so interesting because um, I don't know if you've already started working on it yet because it's like, are you kidding me? It's not even close to the end of the semester, which is absolutely correct. But the question is, how long do you think it'll take you, whatever project you have right now, right, whatever kind of big thing you have going on, how long do you think it'll take you to get this thing done? Um, there was these two uh, psychologists uh, named Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They did a study back in 1977 where um, they wanted to prove that we underestimate how much time it'll take to get anything done. They basically called it, they called it the planning fallacy. And in the study, basically, they came to the conclusion that we have a tendency to disregard historical data when it comes to making predictions. Even though we may have been in the same situation and we did the same project and it took us a certain amount of time, we think, well, next time it'll take us less time. Well, next time it'll take us half the time. In fact, they did another study in like 1993 where they had 37 psychology seniors um, and they're writing their senior, senior, senior thesis, easy for me to say, writing their senior thesis. And they said, okay, estimate how long do you think it'll take you to write your senior thesis? You are seniors in this major. You know how long it takes to write papers. Here's your senior, senior thesis. You know how long it's supposed to be. How long do you estimate it'll take? So the average estimate, they said, it'll take me about 34 days. 34 days to write my senior thesis. Big, pro big paper, big project, 34 days. What is your best case scenario? They said, my best case scenario is it takes me 27 days, so like a week less. Which seems pretty reasonable, right? Good estimation. The average amount of time it took for those seniors to write their senior thesis was 55 days. Now they said 34 days. It took them three weeks, 21 full days longer than they thought. And this is not their first time they ever had to write a paper. But we have this planning fallacy where we underestimate the amount of time it's going to take for us to do something. In fact, there's this woman who's writing an article about this planning fallacy, and she said that we're all, we're all guilty of it, right? It's not just writing papers. Um, she said she's painted five rooms in her house. And the first time she painted a room, she said, it'll take me a weekend. I mean, it's not that big of a room. It took her a month. <laughs> so the second room she's going to paint, she's like, OK, I know the last room took me a month, but I've now done it before. So it'll only take me a weekend, because I'm an expert. And it took her a month. So the third time she painted a room, she's like, OK, now I'm good at this. I know I'm not going to be fooled. I know how long it takes, a weekend. <laughs> And it took her a month. And she said, every, five, every room she's painted, five rooms, they all took her a month. So she's like, the next time I paint a room, the sixth room, I do not care what I think. I'll, I'm not going to disregard my historical data because I'm not going to underestimate how long it takes. Because you know, we started this series last week called Underestimated. And one of the things we talked about was, was that we cannot underestimate who God needs us to be. Right? That in the course of our lives, we cannot, cannot fall into this trap of underestimating the person God needs us to become. But we also have to realize that we cannot underestimate how long that will take. Because if this is the project of our lives, we have to be prepared to actually let it take our entire lives. Because the kind of people God needs us to be are the, are the kind of people, I mean, honestly, what are the kind of people God needs us to be? He needs, he needs us to be the kind of people who love heroically. He, need, he needs us to be the kind of people who can trust heroically. And love and trust are two things that have to grow. You can't just like, I mean, I wish, I wish you could just like wave a wand over someone like, oh, no, I trust, you know, or like, here's a person like, I want to love deeply and here's the bing, you know, 
Now you can trust all of a sudden. Now you can love all of a sudden. But love and trust have to grow. And what, growth takes time. Like no matter how badly we just want it to be done, and how, how badly we want this love to be true and our trust to be powerful, it has to grow. And the growth has to take time. It's so funny. Um, in, in all relationships, I remember once I had a couple come to me and they wanted me to do their wedding on the one-year anniversary of the day they started dating. So you're not reacting how I reacted. You're just like, oh yeah, that sounds right. I'm like, no, that is not right. They're like, it, they dated for less, they, they, they were dating for like four months. Like, no, Father, we know. We, we, and I'm like, you guys have to have big conversations. We had the big conversations already. That's, what do you think we were doing the first four months of our relationship? <laughs> so we, I had to tell, how is it? I had to tell them no in the kindest, gentlest way. We negotiated. Because the reality, of course, is this, is that, yes, you can please have those difficult conversations, talk about big stuff from the very beginning. That's wonderful. But there are some things that only time can reveal. In our relationships, there's, only, there's some things that only time can reveal. And again, it's not just bad things. It's even, we have to get through a certain point in our relationships to be able to be free to say yes to the other person. So um, I say this all the time. And there's this couple, different couple, who's doing their marriage prep. And they had been dating about this point, maybe two and a half years. Um, and they had maybe two months to go until their wedding. And uh, we met and they said, Father, we have to um, let you know that uh, you're right. And I'm like, about what? I get that all the time. No, they, they said, we, we, you're right. Uh, two months ago, we basically, you, you, all, you told us at some point, like the feeling of being in love, the feeling of like you know, googly eyes over each other, you said, you promised that at some point it's going to go. And we thought, no, not us. Our love is stronger. It's forged in, it's made in heaven, written in the stars, like not us. And they both looked at each other and said, two months ago. Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of those things where like, um, you know, they're annoying but also cute. And now they're just annoying. <laughs> And they said, but this is so good. And they saw it as a good thing because it is a good thing. They said, this is so good because now, in two months when we get married to each other, we're free. Like now we get to marry each other, we, we, we're free to walk away right now. We're free to say yes. And we're free to choose. Because why? Because there's some things that only time, that only time can do. That maturing, that growth, that love, that, that stuff. It's, it's those times. It's, it's like the, it's the whole hum times, right? It's the ordinary times. It's the, it's the kind of blah times. And it's even, it's even the absolute lowest times that we can't underestimate. We can't underestimate not only how important they are, but how absolutely necessary even the lowest times are. In the first reading today, it's, it's Isaiah chapter 8. And the first line out of it is just like, it's just... It's heart-wrenching. It says, it says, At first, the Lord degraded Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It's, it's, it's this terrible line. I mean, you know this because we talked about this last week, that um, the kingdom of Israel, right, is 12 tribes. Under King David, he united all 12 tribes. Under King Solomon, his son, is all he still united. But under the next son, everything broke. Everything fell apart. And the 10 tribes in the north broke off. The two tribes in the south stayed, stayed solid. But then a couple hundred years later, the Assyrians came in from the north, and they obliterated those 10 tribes in the north. Now, God had promised something incredible to the kingdom of Israel. He promised that that kingdom would last forever. He promised that that kingdom would bless the entire world. And here they are breaking in two, and then the Assyrians come in, and they destroy that northern kingdom. And the top two tribes that they first destroyed were the tribe of Zebulun and the tribe of Naphtali. 
And so when Isaiah says, at first the Lord degraded Zebulun and Naphtali, what he's reminding the people of is you were walking in faith and all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from underneath you. You thought God was faithful to his promises and all of a sudden the bottom dropped out. And what's been happening is for the last, because by the time Isaiah wrote this in the year 600 BC, he says these people have been walking in darkness for 200 years by this point. And they would walk in darkness for the next 600 years until Jesus Where they absolutely felt like God had abandoned them. Where they absolutely felt like God was no, where God wasn't doing anything in their lives. Not just kind of ordinary, not just ho-hum, but the absolute lowest point that lasted so, so stinking long. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, right? Where, where you just, you had, you had a moment of faith and you're like, okay, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to act in faith and I'm going to follow him and I'm going I'm to take a step because God is faithful and you know God is faithful. And then Nothing. And then sometimes worse than nothing. And so you just keep on trying and you keep on praying and you keep on walking in darkness. You know, it's so powerful because the Bible is full of these stories. The Bible is full of, of stories of people who walked in faith and they found themselves walking in darkness. And they, they just found themselves like needing God, like desperate for God and crying out for God and saying, God, how come it seems like you're not doing anything? How come it seems like you're not listening? In fact, one of these guys is this guy named Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, uh, he, has, he says he had this vision. And this vision was he saw this massive war where there was so much death and so much destruction. And he said he almost died at the vision of this. It just, it, it wrecked him. Here's what Daniel says. I, Daniel, after this vision, I mourned for three full weeks. I ate no savory food. I took no meat, no wine, and I did not anoint myself at all until the end of the three weeks. Like, I didn't even bathe. Like, no one wanted to be around me. Like, here's, here's Daniel who, like, is grieved by this vision, and he immediately turns to the Lord, and nothing happens. Have you ever prayed like that, where it's just like, gosh, God, do something, and there's no response, and there's nothing's happening? Daniel's not just praying, he's fasting, he's, he's in this penance, and nothing. And then what happens, it says, on the 24th day, I was on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, and I looked up, and I saw this man, basically he's an angel, he describes, um, his body was like chrysolite, his face shone like lightning, his eyes were like fiery torches, his arms and feet looked like burnished bronze. His voice sounded like the roar of thunder, and he falls down, he's dead. And the angel steps forward and touches him and says, Fear not, Daniel. From the first day you made up your mind to acquire understanding and humble yourself before God, your prayer was heard. What's the angel saying? He's saying, from the first day you made up your mind to pray, even before you prayed, from the, from the moment you decided to pray, God heard your prayer. From the moment you even thought, I need to come before God, God already knew, and he already responded. What happened is something mysterious, though. He says, um, and because of it, I started out to come to you. But the prince of Persia stood in my way for 21 days until finally Michael the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Um, love, gotta love Michael. Um, I don't understand what that means. It basically means here's the angel who's fighting a demon, and then Michael Archangel comes to like tag team him, and so he can go deliver the message. I don't know what all that means, but the point of what the whole story is, is this. From the moment Daniel started to pray, the moment he decided to pray, God had heard him, but he didn't know. What he's reminding us is this truth. We cannot underestimate what God is doing when it seems like God is doing nothing. We, we cannot underestimate what God is doing when it seems like God is doing nothing because his silence is not the same thing as his absence. And his, and his hiddenness is not the same thing as inactivity. 
that, yeah, we might be a people walking in darkness. I do not know the next step. I do not know what God wants from this. I do not know what God is doing. But we cannot underestimate what God is doing when it seems like God is doing nothing because something is happening. And something is happening in this, in this silence. Something's happening in this darkness. And even something is happening in this brokenness that is absolutely necessary. I don't know if you know anything about Chinese bamboo. But there's a... Uh, if you ever plant a Chinese bamboo forest, here's what you can expect. So if you plant a Chinese bamboo seed, you'll water it and make sure it has everything it needs. For the first year, nothing will happen. So you just keep watering. You keep taking care of that area. In the second year, nothing happens. So you just keep watering, keep making sure it has everything it needs. And the third year, nothing happens. And you keep watering, keep making sure it has everything. The fourth year, nothing happens. Don't dig up the Chinese bamboo seed. Because in the fifth year, what's been happening that first year, second year, third year, fourth year, is not nothing's been happening, but what it's been doing is been setting out a root system that goes so wide and goes so deep that that one year, that fifth year, the bamboo actually grows up to 90 feet in five weeks. It actually grows at a rate of one inch per every 40 minutes. They actually have a time lapse. You can, you can literally sit there and watch the bamboo grow. Because why? Because when it seemed like it was doing nothing, Something was happening. And not just something was happening, what was necessary was happening. Because without those roots, without that depth, without that breadth, without that foundation, it would not be able to support a 90-foot bamboo tree. We have to realize this is true for us, that God is doing something in the silence that he couldn't do without that silence. And God is doing something in our brokenness that he couldn't do without the brokenness. And God is doing something in the darkness that he can't do without the darkness. He's making us into people who can trust. And I can't trust unless I need to trust. He's making us into the kind of people who actually know how to love, not just ourselves, but know how to love the people around us, know how to love him. And again, we said this, both love and trust, they have to grow. And growth takes time, and growth takes silence, and growth takes darkness. And we cannot underestimate what God is doing in the darkness can't underestimate what God is doing in the brokenness, and we can't underestimate what God is doing when it seems like he's doing nothing. But what can we do? Like, okay, Father, all these things we can't do. What can we do? Well, one thing we, do, we can do is we can turn the page. I don't know if you've ever been reading a book, and you get to a part of the book where you're just like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to my favorite character, and you just stop reading the book and throw it against the wall. Like, I'm done with this book. That's dumb. <laughs> what do you do? You don't stop. You keep reading the story. Just because something terrible has happened in the story doesn't mean you abandon the story. It means you turn the page. You know, the last book of the Old Testament is the book of the prophet Malachi. The book of Ma Malachi was written 400 years before Jesus. And if you got to the end of the Old Testament and read Malachi, you were like, well, what the heck? Dang it. I wonder what happens. God has all these promises. He's, he's, he promised all this goodness, all this faithfulness, and that's it. Or you could just turn the page. And then one, one single page turn, you travel 400 years from the last prophet Malachi to the new prophet John the Baptist. It's one page between Malachi and Matthew. It's the same thing is true for us. We find ourselves like in this darkness. We find ourselves in the story, in a terrible part of the story. Maybe it's even a terrible season of the story. And what does God say? Just turn the page. Another way to say it is what Isaiah says in chapter 8 today. He says, there's a people walking in darkness. They weren't just laying there. They were moving. 
They're able to actually say, okay, this is what it is. I'm going to walk, because that's what it is to live, you guys. To, to live is to walk in darkness. To live in this world of uncertainty is to walk in darkness. This guy named Soren Kierkegaard, he said it like this. He said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Life can only be understood when I've already lived through it and I look back and go, oh, now I understand. But I have to live it forwards. So I have to keep walking. I have to turn the page in that darkness and brokenness. What do you do? You do what you, do what you know to do. You remember. I don't know if you caught this at the end of the first reading. Isaiah. God says, here's all the things that are going to happen. Here's all the things that are going to happen. And then he ends it with this, as on the days of Midian. And you, if you're like me, you went like, okay, neat. As on the, yeah, it must have been a good day. But then we didn't look it up until I was getting ready for this. And I was like, let me look that up. What is the day of Midian? Well, it finds, turns out it's in the Bible. I should have known that. I knew it. I'm just kidding. Um, so in the book of Judges, here's what ha- was going down. The people of Israel being terrorized by the Midianites. Like, Israel was so weak. They were so small. They were so poor. And Midian was they were a bunch of terrorists, honestly. They not only violently attacked the Israelites, they also did, like, the psychological warfare where they actually, like, they would poison their wells, where they would kill their, their animals. And they actually did this thing where they waited until the Israelites planted their crops, like, used all their seeds. And then after they planted their crops, they just ruined the crop. They not only to violently attack the Israelites themselves, but to then attack their way of life, to, to attack their source of food, their nourishment. And there's this guy named Gideon. And Gideon, at one point, with this little amount of food, he's trying to get it all ready for his family. And an angel appears to him and says, you know, hail the champion. And Gideon's like, I'm not a champion. God, we've been praying for you for so long. How come you haven't answered us? Our, haven't answered us? How come you haven't answered our prayers? And the angel says, the Lord hears your prayers. He's with you in your woundedness. He's with you in your brokenness, and he's going to fight for you. And so what he does is Gideon says, yeah, guys, God's on our side. Let's fight the Midianites. So like thousands of Israelites showed up. Like if God's with us, listen, I'm on his team too. And thousands of people show up. And God says, no, 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 I don't want, he's like, basically God says, I'm going to win. I don't want to win with thousands of people because it's less impressive. And you're going to think that it was you who did it. So here's the deal, Gideon. Whittle this thousands and thousands of guys down to 300. And I'm going to show you how I can fight for you. So Gideon does this. They surround the camp of Midian. And they don't surround with weapons, with swords, with spears. They surround the camp of Midian with a torch with, you know, flame on it and trumpets. They surround it and they walk into the camp with, the, with a, a cover over the, over the torches. And at one point, they break the cover, have the torches, blow the trumpets, and say, forgotten for Midian, or forgotten for Gideon. And the Midianites wake up and they kill each other. You guys are not as excited about that story as I am. You're like, oh, that's kind of a sad ending. Yeah, the terrorists died. Yeah, sad ending. Gosh. It, but here's the thing. Is it, so here's Isaiah saying, you think you're walking in darkness. You think I've abandoned you. You think I don't hear your prayers. Remember the days of Midian? When I defeated the people who were terrorizing you for years and years and years, and you didn't even have to swing a sword. Like, remember that I'm faithful. I was talking to a missionary recently who um, was talking to a student recently. That's how it goes. It's like telephone. And um, this, this, this freshman last year, she, just, she encountered Jesus in this entirely new way when she got to campus. And she just started praying this life of prayer. And last year, she talked to her missionary and said, is it, do you ever have that time where you, you go into the chapel, you know, and you just can't stop crying because of how much Jesus loves you so much? The missionary's like, no. 
I wish I did, but I'm glad he gave it to you. Um, like, but that, that was part of her experience last year where she'd go into pray and it just was like, God loves me so, he loves, he knows my name, he loves me so much that just would weep. And this year she was talking to the same missionary and saying, like, I can't even go pray. I show up and it seems like God's not there. I show up and I'm so, it's so dry, I'm so distracted, it feels so empty, is he even there? And the missionary said, do you remember how last year when you would go to pray, you'd be overwhelmed by Jesus' personal love for you? She's like, no, I forgot. That's us, that's every single one of us. When we find ourselves walking in darkness, we forgot what we, were, what we knew was true in the light. And so we begin to underestimate what God is doing in the darkness. Begin to think he's not doing anything. But he's there. We just have to keep reading. We have to keep walking. We have to, keep, we have to finish the story because there's no way to know how the story's going to end until the story has actually happened. Until the story's actually ended. Because then we'll know. Because then we'll understand. What God was doing when it seemed like he was doing nothing. Until then, we cannot underestimate what we cannot understand. This is just the invitation. Don't underestimate what you don't understand. You know, there's this, this last thing. Um, it says, at first, the Lord degraded Zebulun and Naphtali. And then the next line is really powerful. It says, but in the end, but in the end, he made them a glorious road. But in the end, he restored them. But in the end, he lifted them up. But in the end, he transformed all of that pain. Here's the, here's the question I have to ask you all. Are you and I, are we okay with temporary suffering? If in the end, God restores us. Are you and I okay with, with temporary loss if in the end, God will use it all? Are we okay with temporary pain if in the end, it all matters? Because that's what he promises. I mean, we come here and we pray for healing at times. We pray for reconciliation at times. We pray for a, a future at times and certain outcomes. We pray for all those things. And, some, and God can do all that stuff. But we also know that healing and reconciliation and recovery are not the only possible outcomes. Death is a possible outcome. Not finding a spouse is a possible outcome. Not passing that class, not getting that job, those are all real possibilities. But in that, God is present. In that, God is active. Even when my chapter is over, the story still goes on. You know, I was talking to another student. I asked her if I could share this with you all. She said it was okay. Um, for most of her adult, or most of her teenage life and up till now, her mom has been, um, has been ill in a way that she didn't know if the last, if she didn't know when the last goodbye to her mom would be her last goodbye to her mom. And last semester, her mom passed away. And this last Christmas was her first Christmas that her family celebrated without her mom. At one point, uh, someone from her parish, you know, she's back home, someone from her parish came up and, and 
brought it up and said, oh, isn't it so hard to have, not have your mom here with you at Christmas? I'm like, yes, it is. Thank you very much for bringing that up in front of me. Um, but she said this other thing. She said, because um, her sister had a baby. And this woman said, oh, isn't it so sad that your mom will never get the chance to hold your little nephew? Isn't it so sad that your mom will never get the chance to hold her grandson? And the student said, first of all, she's like, first of all, rude. Um, <laughs> yes, it is sad, but why are you talking to me about this? Secondly, why try, are you trying to manipulate my emotions? And thirdly, she said, actually, my mom is still alive in Christ Jesus. And I'm a Catholic Christian, and I believe that my mom still lives. My mom knows her grandson. My mom knows my nephew. My mom is alive in Christ, and her life is not over. Her chapter on this earth might be over, but the story is not yet written. And yes, it wasn't the outcome we all prayed for. But I'm not about to doubt in darkness the power of God and the love of God that I knew was true in the light. Because in the end, here's what the Catechism says about in the end. That when the whole story is written, like when Jesus comes again, and like all time is done, and every one of our stories is, is like there's a period at the end of it, and it's a great book. It's a, he says this. He says, we shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation. In the end, we shall know the entire economy. We'll, in the end, we'll understand the marvelous ways by which God in his providence led everything towards its final end. Because in the end, it says this, it will reveal that God's justice triumphs over all of the injustices committed by his creatures and that God's love is stronger than death. And that in the end, we realize, okay, that brokenness was not just helpful, it was necessary. I needed that brokenness. And that hiddenness was not just helpful, I needed that hiddenness. And that darkness, I needed to walk in darkness. Because in the end, there'll be no room to underestimate what God was doing when it seemed like he was doing nothing.